0: All right, if you have your Bible, uh, turn with me to, to Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to be covering verses 1 through 7 this morning. Have you ever wanted something so badly that you could taste it? I'm not exactly sure how that works, but I hear people talk about that, that level of intensity, just really, really wanting something. Have you ever wanted to be with someone so desperately that he or she is all you can think about? Maybe you reflect back to a time early in your dating relationship. Maybe now there's someone that you have your sights on and and you're thinking, oh, if I could just be with that person, life would be so much better. Or maybe you're with the person you love, but you're, you're separated now by distance, or that person is traveling. You think, I really would love to be with that person. Have you ever wanted a change in your situation so terribly that it keeps you up at night? Maybe, maybe you're not in a relationship and you really, really want to be in a relationship. Or maybe you're in a relationship and you really would like to be out of that relationship. Maybe you don't, want, maybe you don't have children and you just so desperately want children. Or maybe you have children and they're in their mid-20s and they're still at home and you're kind of desperate for them to move on. <laughs> Whatever it is, you, you want your situation to change. Maybe, maybe you're in a job that just exhausts you. And you think, if I could just get another job, I'd be more inspired, I'd be happier, life would be better. Maybe you don't have a job, and you want a job. And you want your situation to change so badly that it keeps you up at night. Have you ever wanted to be at peace with someone in such a profound way that it makes you physically sick to think about the conflict that you're experiencing? Maybe it's a conflict with a spouse And you tried everything, but it just doesn't seem to be working out. Maybe it's a conflict between you and your son or daughter, maybe a sibling. You're longing for that conflict to be over. As unglorified humans living in this sin-cursed planet, longing is a regular part of our lives. Now, maybe you don't think like that. You don't talk like that. You just put your head down and you go to work and you don't talk about your feelings. But even you long for things. You want things. So we saw last week the story of the Bible, which is really the story of humanity, is, is one that begins with beauty and peace and harmony and serenity, but it actually quickly devolves into chaos because of the rebellion of Adam and Eve. And now Paul says, the Apostle Paul says, the whole world is longing for restoration. Now to be sure, uh, some of our, many of our longings are actually fairly superficial. Uh, maybe, maybe you want you just want a new thing. Maybe it's a new car and you just long for that. Maybe, maybe you want a new phone. How many of you have asked for a new phone for Christmas? Maybe you're just looking, you're, you're just longing for a new device. Maybe, maybe what you're really longing for is financial freedom. You think if I could just get rid of some of this debt, I would be so much better off. Some of our longings are superficial, but there are deeper longings that we deal with a longing for peace, a longing for forgiveness a longing to be known and loved, which we all have, a longing to be known and loved by God, to be right with God. In his book, The Holy Longing, which I don't necessarily recommend, it's a little too uh, mystical for me, but, it, but uh, it does contain some powerful and poetic insights, I think, into the human condition. Ronald Rollheiser writes this, In this life, we are not restful creatures who sometimes get restless, Fulfilled people who sometimes are dissatisfied, serene people who sometimes experience disquiet. Rather, we are restless people who sometimes or who occasionally find rest, dissatisfied people who occasionally find fulfillment, and disquieted people who occasionally find serenity. We do not naturally default into rest, satisfaction, and quiet, but into their opposite. Our natural default is, is dissatisfaction. This is why so many people that you know, so many people that I know, and we do it ourselves—we complain, constant complaining. This is why this is what makes Psalm 23 so powerful and mysterious. The Lord is my shepherd; I shall not want. It doesn't mean I don't want that shepherd. It means because He's my shepherd, I, I I don't desire anything else. I have all I need. That's why that's so mysterious to us. One of the characteristics of the unglorified person, which we all are, is that we're restless. We're searching, we're looking for something. We have longings that continue. And the question is what do we do with those longings? What do we do with those relentless desires that seem to haunt us? How do we handle our unmet expectations? This morning I want to look at those, but I want to break this passage down into three parts. Who is Christmas for? Who is it about, and what does Christmas promise? Who is it for, what is it, who is it about, and what does it promise? Isaiah chapter 9. Let me start by reading verses 1 through 5. The word of the Lord reads this way. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now, I want to stop there because if I, if I sort of got someone's attention as they were walking into Walmart and I asked them a question, who is Christmas for? You might imagine I'd get a variety of answers. I might get someone who would say, well, Christmas is really for the children. You know, it's, you have the elves and the Santa and the decoration, all these things. Christmas is really for children. And some might say, well, Christmas is really for families. It's a chance for families to be together and uh, for people to travel home and for everyone to be reunited. Some might say Christmas is for the family. Others might say Christmas is really for the sentimental. You know, it's like those who like to reflect back and look back and those who get caught up in sentimentality and so in emotion. And some might say, of course, Christmas is for Christians. After all, uh, Muslims have their own holidays, and other religious folks have their own holidays, so some would say, naturally, Christmas is for Christians. But if we look back 700 years before Jesus arrived, and we see the situation that both precedes and points to Christmas as we know it, we might have a very different idea. If you look at a map of ancient Israel, as you can see behind me, you see on the left, that's the whole nation of Israel. And you see at the upper part of it, the the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, the ones that we just read about in Isaiah chapter 9, they were kind of at the very outskirts. Well, this was the first part of the promised land to collapse uh, at the oppression or under the advancement of the Assyrians and the sort of diabolical genius madman who was Tiglath-Pileser III. He was a guy who sort of reinvented uh, military forces and reorganized Assyria Took over Assyria in the middle of a civil war as a bit of a coup. And um, again, he was this brilliant madman. And he started to, in in sort of a real life version of, I guess the game's called Risk, right? He started to expand his territory. And then he made his way into the regions, the region of of Galilee, Naphtali and Zebulun. uh, We're told. This is why uh, verse 1 calls this area the Galilee of the nations, or or literally, Galilee of the Gentiles. Under the reign of Tiglath-Pileser in 733, this was the first region of Israel uh, to be conquered. This is what Isaiah means when he says the region was brought into contempt, Uh, verse 1. It was humbled. The whole region was taken over by non-Jewish people, and the descendants of Israel then became really strangers and slaves in their own homeland. Uh, One historian and scholar Alec Motyer describes the scene this way, nationally, foreign invasions have left a trail of desolation. Religiously, sacrifices in abundance have not gotten through to God and done nothing to rectify the national plight. And socially, city life is degenerate and dangerous. Its leaders corrupt and self-seeking and the needy uncared for. So when Isaiah writes this, You have to think, Israel is at one of the worst times it's ever experienced. Um, The people are enslaved. Now think about how they felt. Their own children had been taken from them and employed in the army of Assyria. Uh, Their homes had been taken from them. They were poor. They had been robbed of their own possessions. They'd lost their jobs. Things were terrible. What were they thinking? What they were longing for, what? They were longing for deliverance. They were longing for someone to come along and rescue them. Someone to take note of their plight and be their deliverer. They were looking, though, in all the wrong places. They practiced a number of sort of cultic ways. And even um, this word uh, necromancy, which means they were consulting the dead. They were going to their dead uh, aunts and uncles as a way to sort of see the future. They were going all about all the wrong ways. They were desperate for things to change. And to them, in a passage that points to Christmas, perhaps like no other, Isaiah gives them hope. Now, here's the first point, the answer to the question, who is Christmas for? Christmas is for those who have been broken by life in this world and long for things to be different. That's what Christmas, that's what Christmas is all about. That's who Christmas is for. See, the oppression that the people of Israel were suffering and the enslavement that they were enduring at the hands of the powerful enemy Assyria, all that was a symbol of, meant to be a symbol of the oppression and enslavement that we suffer from, the powerful enemies of sin and death. But the deliverance that Israel would ultimately experience through no power or ability of their own, but through the most unexpected rescuer, a child, is also meant to symbolize the deliverance from sin and death that we would experience through no power, no ability of our own, but again, through the most unexpected rescuer. Isaiah calls these folks people who have once walked in darkness. They've once walked, verse 2, in deep darkness. The phrase deep darkness is literally the death shadow. These are people, this is a poetic way to talk about living in the struggle of oppression and trials and heartbreak and toil and burden the people were exhausted they were worn out they were overwhelmed sounds a little bit like us at christmas doesn't it i mean christmas is supposed to be as i mentioned this time of refreshment but but the reality is there's no time of the year when we when things have to look better we have to put more of a front on than at christmas everything has to be at its instagrammable best Everything has to be perfect. We can't dare let people know that things aren't going well in our family, not at Christmas. Everything has to be, the food has to be delectable. The, the decorations have to be pristine and exquisite. And I have to be honest with you, I, we have no outside decorations in our house. And we live across from, diagonally from, it must be the Griswolds, I don't know. They, they have the, they've got the candy canes and all the blow-ups and, and, and I feel the shame every day. I feel the shame every day. I drive up. I pull out my driveway. I have to look the other way because they have a a, a veritable playground. I've got nothing. I do have a tree inside that you can see when the shades are open. That's it. But at Christmas time, everything has to be perfect. Our kids have to be cute, well-dressed, well-behaved. You know, our house has to be, uh, again, beautifully clean and organized. There is that burden this time of year to, to just put on this pretense of perfection. Everything has to be right. But Isaiah shows us something. Isaiah 9 is so remarkable. It shows us that God did not send His Son to congratulate the successful. He didn't send His Son to fist bump those who had everything together. God sent His Son to those who are broken, for those who are in darkness, for those who live under the death shadow, the pressure, the obligation, all of those things. On them a light has shone. Christmas is for the broken. Now, how about our next question? Who is Christmas about? Now, I realize, of course, sometimes my kids get mad at me when they think I'm asking them a question that I already know the answer to. They say, Dad, why are you asking me that? You know the answer. I know when I ask you the question, who is Christmas about? You know the answer, right? There's only, it can only be one thing. It's kind of like the the Sunday school teacher who's teaching the 5th the and 6th graders, and, and she says, okay, what has a long furry tail, big teeth, climbs trees, and eat, eats nuts? They say, well, it sounds a lot like a squirrel, but I know it has to be Jesus. The answer has to be Jesus. That's the way it works in Sunday school. So, yeah, I know that you know the answer. Of course it's about Jesus, but in what sense? Look at verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. That's a key phrase. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness... From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, the word for in verse 6 is important. It is for, because of, or on account of, a child that we have hope. The reason to anticipate the restoration that I talk about is actually a child that is given to us. Now, this child is, is unlike any child that's ever been born, of course. In fact, there are four titles ascribed to this child that you can only actually give to God. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, we don't have time to look at each one in depth, but they point to the deity of Christ. These royal titles really spell out the attributes of God. When our, first, when our four kids were born... Each time, Janine and I had a hard time kind of picking out names for our kids. You know what this is like, right? You, you bring your names, you slide them to the table, whatever, mm-hmm. you try to agree on them. Well, my name is John Peary Sloan IV, most of you know, um, and I wanted to name our son John Peary Sloan V. And so after some debate, my wife was very gracious and said, okay, we can do that. And so we named him John Peary Sloan V. We call him Quinn, which means uh, fifth in Latin. It just sort of avoided confusion in the house and so on. And then the next two, we knew, we knew their genders before they were born, and so we had names picked out, and it was fairly agreeable. We knew what we wanted to say, what we wanted to call them. But for the fourth one, we didn't know what the gender was, and we were having a hard time. What would the names be? And if I, I had a name that I wanted, if it was going to be a boy, I wanted the name to be Diesel. I thought that sounded kind of cool, right? Diesel Sloan. Um, but Janine, she wouldn't even talk about it. In fact, she wouldn't even pray about it. I thought that was very unspiritual. You should at least pray about it. She said, no, I'm not going to pray about it. I'm not going to talk about it. Uh, we're not going to have a child by the name of Diesel. And then, rather than being sort of uh, understanding about my desires, she just constantly mocked me about it. Don't let, uh, yeah, don't let Diesel get t- too close to the fireplace. We want the house to explode. And she, she had a number of, uh, you know, I'd let you hold the baby, but I don't want your hands to smell like Diesel. So, you know, this went on and on. And, So, you know, fortunately, I guess for us, to save a major argument, we had a a girl and named her Julia, which fit her perfectly, and so, you know, everything worked out okay. But, you know, we didn't really think a lot about the meaning of our children's names. Um, You know, some people do, and they research it and so on, and that's a good thing. We didn't do much about that, But, but even the parents who do it now, it's nothing like it was in ancient Jewish tradition, in Hebrew thought a person's name was meant to capture their very essence it captured them at the real core you might say it really described who they are what their attributes were what they were what their characteristics were again who they were at the very essence level uh, for example isaac you know means laughter noah means rest or peace and so when isaiah is speaking of the name of the coming messiah and he tells us that his name will be mighty god And so on. He's telling us about the very characteristics of the Messiah, and those are the attributes of God. The very attributes of God. He is the wonderful counselor, Isaiah says. This refers to one who possesses divine wisdom, kind of wisdom that's only found above. He is the mighty God. That is to say, he has the power to execute his divine plan. His wise plans will be carried out, and there's no one who's ever been born who can actually thwart those plans. He is the mighty God. Isaiah said He is is the everlasting Father. Now, this doesn't mean that the Son is also the Father. As Christians, Christians have always believed that God is one God who exists in three persons. This is a reference to the eternality of the Son as the source and provider of all things. I think a better translation might be the Father of Eternity. He is the source of all creation, time, and eternity. As Pastor Adam's favorite benediction reads, He was there at the beginning. He was God, and He was was with God. He is, Isaiah says, the Prince of Peace. In other words, He was born so that man could be reconciled to God. These are the names of God. They represent the attributes of God because this Messiah, this coming one, is God. But the Redeemer is also human. Unto us a child is born. While never ceasing to be God for a moment, he experienced all the pains and struggles common to man. There's nothing that you can go through or have ever been through, at least categorically, that Jesus hasn't suffered as well. He was fully man. I know it's mysterious and it transcends logic, but it's necessary for us to think in those terms. So, who is Christmas about? Here's our second point: Christmas is about the God-Man, the one who created the world and came to the world to redeem it. Now, I make that point because I think it's possible. At Christmas time, we drive around, we see the the living nativity, we have the little trinkets in our windowsills and so on, it's easy for us to think about Christmas just in terms of the babe in the manger, the baby. And we see, we see the little balsa wood arrangements of, the, of Mary and Joseph and Jesus, and we say, oh, that's so cute. That's so cute. And we think about Jesus only in those terms, in terms of the baby in the manger. And, of course, it is about that. But Jesus didn't remain a cute, helpless baby. He grew up to be the man, the God-man, who would bear the sins of the world. The things this coming one would accomplish, there was nothing childish about them. The government, we're told, would be on his shoulder. He would inaugurate a new kingdom, a new reign that would include all those who trust in him. This light, verse 3, multiplies the nations. In other words, no longer will God's people simply be a remnant of believing Israel. God will bring people into his kingdom, into his fold of every tribe, tongue, nation, ethnicity, background, and lineage. He would multiply the nations as he brings people from all walks of life to saving faith in Jesus Christ. This light, verse 3, says, brings joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy of harvest. Both, both the farmer and the soldier, verse 4, will experience joy. And these provides illustrations of the joy that is to come for all God's people. The oppressor will be removed, verse 4. The boot of the soldier who trampled Israel will be obsolete. Garments stained in blood will be burned in fire, verse 5, as evidence that the conflict is over. Think about all the armies on the face of the earth. Of all the countries and all the nations and all those people wearing boots, it'll all be piled up in one heap, in one fire. In other words, peace will be restored. In a word, God's people will experience liberation and freedom. And again, all of this is to point to the freedom from sin and death that Jesus will bring for his people. Talk about walking in darkness. If you've been around through our series in John's Gospel you know that by nature, we are all spiritually darkened. We walk in spiritual darkness from the time we're born. In fact, Jesus has this incredible exchange with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And Jesus says, unless a person is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Not just just enter the kingdom, he can't even see the kingdom of God. He is totally unaware of, oblivious to God's work in the world. Totally oblivious to, unaware of his or her own need for salvation. So we come into this world walking in spiritual darkness. If you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are walking in spiritual darkness. You are separated from God. Doesn't matter if you grew up in church, doesn't matter if you were born into a Christian family, doesn't matter if you know all the Sunday school answers, doesn't matter. If you've not put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are living in spiritual darkness. We're all rebellious people. We've all fallen short of God's standard of perfection. We live in darkness, unable to please God, unable to make ourselves good enough for God. Again, born separated from Him. And we remain that way until or unless we put our faith in Jesus Christ. But that happens as the light sh- shines on us, illuminating our eyes and our hearts. See, all, all throughout this passage, there's the fragrance of grace. The whole passage is a passage about grace. The evidence that life, joy, forgiveness, purpose, salvation, these are all things that are offered to all people. They're, all, they're a gift. They're not something we can earn. Isaiah says in verse 4 of what Christ will do, You have broken the rod as in the day of Midian. Do you remember the story of Midian, recorded in Judges? Midian was a was a nation that rallied against Israel, the time of Gideon. And it was a time where Israel was actually in great danger. In fact, they, they, the the nation was surround, was was encroaching upon them, closing in on them. It's kind of like that scene in the first Star Wars where Princess Leia and Luke Skywalker on Han Solo are on the Death Star. You remember those walls? They keep getting it. They, they, they can't stop the walls from closing in. They feel the pressure. They feel the fear. They try to stop it. Well, this is like, like that. It was like that. The, the, the nation of Midian was enclosing on Israel. And Israel was about to be overtaken. And what does God say? He said, you know, we have 32,000 people in this army, but I want to change that number. He says, you know... Let's instead fight with 300, from 32,000 to 300. Now, why would God do such a thing? And why, of all the battles in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, why would Isaiah make reference to this one? Because this is a beautiful story that shows us, the battle of Midian, that it won't be by human ingenuity, human strength, human power, human plotting, that salvation will come to anyone. It's only... By the Lord's doing. It's only by the grace of God. Again, we see grace all over this passage. Verse 6 tells us, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is what? Is given. A son is given. I talk to so many people all the time who, though they would never articulate it, they're working so hard to earn God's favor, or maybe they're working so hard to remain in God's favor, they think, If I can just do enough, if I can stop cussing and I can stop getting mad and I can just read my Bible every once in a while and do a devotion, then finally God will receive me. They think it's all on them. So as a result, of course, they're, they're worn out, overwhelmed with guilt, mad at somebody for something. Plus, they have the hardest time putting on humility or admitting that they're wrong because this may jeopardize in their minds their standing with God. What will other people think of them? if they actually admit they're wrong. What will other people think of them if they say, you know what, I failed, I blew it, I'm sorry. They live instead by a code of self-righteousness. I must be right, and everybody else must be wrong. Well, Isaiah has the remedy to that ailment, doesn't he? To us, a son was given. If you're given something, you haven't earned it. If you're given something, it means you don't deserve it. The Son was given to bear our sins. The Son was given to die on a cross to pay the penalty for our rebellion. The Son was given so that we could receive something we could never earn. God's forgiveness, complete and total forgiveness. There's nothing that you have done in your past, yesterday, this morning. There's nothing that you have ever done that is beyond the scope of God's forgiveness to cover. And that's because unto us a son was given. The son was given so that, again, we could have rest from our struggling and our striving, freedom from guilt and shame, sight to the blind, water to the thirsty. It's all ours by grace. You can't earn it, you can't secure it by your own efforts. And when we realize that, it's all a gift, it's all ours by grace. We start longing, speaking of longing. We long to worship and please the God who redeemed us. When we understand it's by grace, we become more grateful, more humble, more joyful. And we can start really experiencing life. A few years ago, I was leading through a small group in my house. And we went through the book uh, by Brendan Manning called Ragamuffin Gospel. In it, Manning says this, To live by grace means to acknowledge my whole life story. The light side and the dark. And admitting my shadow side, I learn who I am and what God's grace means. A saint is not someone who is good, but someone who experiences the goodness of God. Even our fidelity, even our goodness, our faith, our truthfulness, whatever, is a gift. If we but turn to God, said Augustine, that itself is a gift of God. My deepest awareness of myself is that I am deeply loved by Jesus Christ and have done nothing to deserve it. Now, that brings us to a place of humility, doesn't it? Because how can I look down at somebody else, my neighbor, my co-worker, my classmate, whatever, because they do all these terrible things, if I realize that it's only by the grace of God that I don't do far worse than they've done? It's only by the grace of God. All right, what about our final question, what does Christmas promise? Well, what's so fascinating about this passage, in my estimation, is that Isaiah mixes the future and past tenses in the language. It's almost like he's standing on his tiptoes, so to speak, and he's, he's looking into the future, but he describes what he sees in the past tense as if it's already happened because it's that certain, even though it has yet to transpire. So at this point, remember, the people of Israel, Israel has, Assyria, rather, has begun their onslaught and they're, the people of Israel are suffering. They've been displaced. They've been captive, held captive to slavery And Isaiah says that joy is coming. Joy is here. He talks about these things as if they've already happened. The people have to think that Isaiah has totally lost it. They are under the tyranny of the Assyrians even at that moment. But Isaiah says there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish, even though the anguish is going on at that very second. What Isaiah is doing is showing us how faithful God is. One Old Testament scholar, Tremper Longman, writes this. Past tenses are used to speak of events that, though future, are certain because they are divinely planned and predicted through an authentic prophet of God. These prophetic perfects, that's the tense of the language, serve to present faith's faculty of imagination with the assurance of things hoped for. Here's all that means. This is our third point, our final point. Christmas promises that one day every longing that we have will be fulfilled. It's so sure that in God's eyes, it's already happened. When God tells the people of Israel there will be no gloom, He's promising them that one day they will experience the fullness of joy. And the same is true for us. You may want to be in a relationship. And maybe you have the person in mind that you want to be in that relationship with, but maybe that's not what God has for you at the moment. You may want to be out of a relationship. You think, I just can't suffer this marriage any longer. But that may not, may not be what God has for you. He may have you in it for the duration. You may long for children, and maybe God has that for you, and maybe He doesn't. You may long for your children to leave, and maybe God has that for you, and maybe you've got a couple more years to suffer. We don't know. Maybe... God's plan is to give you what you're asking for at this moment, and maybe it's not. But you can know this. If you are in Christ, if you've turned from your sin, if you've believed on Jesus Christ, recognizing you cannot save yourself, you need a Savior, if you've put your faith in the child who would become a man, who would die on a cross and be raised again, then you can know for sure that one day you'll have everything your heart has ever longed for. And so much more. So much more. And in the meantime, God will continue to sustain you and comfort you and keep you by His grace. He will strengthen you and preserve you, even now giving you great joy in Himself. My prayer that I pray all the time for myself, for my wife, for my children, for you, is God, increase our joy in you. Increase our joy in you. Safeguard us from all of those other things that threaten to steal our joy, to become idols in our hearts. Even now, God will strengthen you and preserve you as you cling to him in prayer, as you take in the grand story of redemption, this beautiful story which centers on Jesus Christ. It may seem, and maybe you feel like this moment, everything in the world is against you. Your parents are against you. Your friends are against you. Your classmates are against you. The coach is against you. Your boss is against you. Well, I can say to you, in the words of Isaiah, your gloom and anguish will one day turn to joy. Verse 7, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It is God's great concern and delight. It is his zeal. In other words, he's actually fired up about it. Coming to your rescue and satisfying your heart with good things, namely with himself. One day every trial and pain and struggle and heartbreak that you enjoy will or endure will be over and you will have complete and perfect joy that will never end. In fact, it's so certain for you. That when God talks about it, He does so as if it's already taken place. The entire world will be renewed. And it's so sure that, when, that that God sees it as both a future and a past. Every longing of your heart will be fulfilled if you're in Christ. And that's because the light has shone on the world. The light who is Jesus Christ. Our unfulfilled longings are meant to point us to a future hope and a future home. Again, where there will be no crying, no sadness, no heartbreak, no cancer, no disease, no oppression, no poverty, no racism, no divorce. All of that stuff will be over. And in the meantime, we take joy in the God who will cause it to be so. And we continue to look forward. In just a moment, a few moments, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table together as a church. Is that this morning, Adam, or not? Yes. Yes. I promise. I didn't see anything up here in the front. Uh, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table, and that is that's a that's a very sort of small truncated meal, if we can call it that. But it's a way to look forward to, to stir our hearts to look forward to the great feast, the supper of the Lamb, where we will be with Christ forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for a great morning of music worship. Thank you for the fellowship we enjoy as believers. Thank you for those who are here this morning who have been invited by a friend, maybe a parent, maybe by a neighbor. Father, I pray. God, I believe. I know you can do it. I believe you will do it. Father, will you bring some to saving faith this morning? Will you comfort some who are just worn out and exhausted and so lacking in joy? Father, will you come to their rescue? Will you enable us? Again, will you help us so that those worldly those worldly treasures become dim and our hearts and our eyes are fixed on Jesus Christ? Cause it to be so. Lord, do it by the zeal of your holy name. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.